Hello and welcome to episode five of Pitch to Pub podcast. I am one half of your host, Mark Avunis, and your other half is Sean Ovington. Sean, good evening. Evening, mate. You've, you've made us sound like a hybrid person combined into one horse, mate. I think I think there's two of us in there. We're not. I'm not the. We're not left or right half, mate. <laughs> well, you're half left. I'm not sure about the rightness, but um, we'll <laughs> we'll save that for another time. Um, <laughs> I have the pleasure to introduce our fourth guest, um, ex-professional goalkeeper who spent eight years at Watford and five years at Brentford. Um, and I have had the pleasure of knowing for, for a few years now. Um, and it is Mr. Richard Lee. Rich, how are you doing? Yeah, very well. Yourself? Yeah, really good, thank you. Really good. What are you... Um, What's currently going on in Mr. Richard Lee's world? Uh, oh, big question. Um, no, at the moment, I'm still heavily involved in football. So I retired uh, five and a half years ago now. And yeah, various different guises since then, but very much back involved in football now, working with a lot of goalkeepers, professional goalkeepers, um, and pretty much anything to do with goalkeeping. So a few different strands off it. Um, but yeah, it's nice still to be, to be involved. Good. Okay, so let's let's go back to the beginning, and I guess um, you you had the the um, I don't want to say privilege; it's not really the right word. You kind of had the pleasure to be a professional footballer. Um, obviously, worked very hard. You know, um, I know we've shared stories in the past of you know being in the gym and doing the extra work and, and summers and all that kind of stuff. But but where did it all start for you? Firstly, as a footballer, but Secondly, as a, as a goalkeeper, because you've got to be a special breed to be one of them, haven't you? <laughs> a little bit mental, yeah. No, do you know what? And my story, I think, probably similar to a lot of goalkeepers that um, that I've spoken to, where it kind of happened by accident. You know, mm. I think uh, this often happens where it's, you know, unfortunately, like it's still not necessarily the position that a lot of young young players choose to play. Um, but for me, it was a case of we didn't have a goalkeeper, uh, and effectively, I stepped in. Um, and I, I enjoyed it. I mean, I took to it quite quickly. The idea of uh, going out with my mates and throwing myself around all over the place, I actually just really enjoyed. And before <laughs> I knew it, within a, yeah, within a year or so, or a year or two from memory, I was then picked up by Watford, actually at the age of 10. So although I wow. didn't make my debut until I was 20 or 21, I think. But uh, yeah, I was picked up at the age of 10 and went through all the various age groups, various youth teams and lots of different coaches along the way. And and yeah, it kind of it obviously worked out, but it was it was luck more than anything really to to even become a goalkeeper, and then it was just an enjoyment for the type of training that you do. Yeah. So let's talk about training. Like now that you've touched on it, mm. um, I guess for a lot of people out there, they think, oh yeah, goalkeeper will just do a bit of few drills and a lot of handling stuff, a bit of kicking, and then you know go in and and get a massage and then go and get lunch. Like how so? How different? how different is a goalkeeping's training from, from a player's training? And, and at what point, I guess, during training, do you kind of merge with the team? Because you don't train together much, do you, I suppose? No, so it's, it, it, it's improving all the time as well. So to be honest, when I was younger, there wasn't actually that many goalkeeper coaches around. And now, you know, certainly any club worth their salt, they've got a, a good goalkeeper coach attached. But no, in terms of goalkeeper training, the, 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 you know, the thing that I, uh, I suppose I find interesting is that it is a completely different sport that we're playing compared to the other players. You know, you're playing an individual sport in a team environment. So, 
you know, what we do is anaerobic, what they do is aerobic. So effectively, our training will mirror more of what a, a weightlifter would do than, say, a marathon runner, you know, whereas obviously the outfield players, it's, it's a very different form of training. So, yeah, for me, uh, certainly when I was at my peak in my early 20s, it was a lot of plyometric training. Um, so a lot of stuff that I derived from basketball drills that I'd seen. Uh, did a lot of boxing, again, speed of movement, speed of hands, speed of feet. Mm -hmm. Uh, gymnastics, the flexibility, the power. It's a blend of all these things would then help create the ultimate goalkeeper. And then you've got the technical side, as you touched on, the, the handling, the kick in, you know, you go out and do your technical work with a goalkeeper coach. And then ordinarily, you know, the structure of a session might be that you do your gym work to begin. You go out, do 45 minutes with your goalkeeper coach, which will be largely technical. And then you move over with the team, which might be going through shape, going through pattern of play, maybe the odd five aside or what have you. And then, in the afternoon, again, more gym work, which will be slightly different. And then above and beyond that, you've then got the, the psychological side, which was one that really interested me, how you can get yourself into the right mindset for every game that you play. Uh, you've got the tactical side as well, understanding the game, as well as understanding almost goalkeeping as a school subject, if you were to look at it like that. So how can mm. you then know the game, read the game as best you can, communicate with those around you as best you can, and try and find the little edges that can make you that little bit better. Rich, could I just um, jump in? Quick question. You've touched upon kind of psychologically there. Mm. Um, so, obviously, in, in a football team, there's the defence, you midfield strikers. There's numerous plays for numerous positions there. As a goalkeeper, there's essentially three or four of you competing for one position. So, so mentally, kind of, how, how's the preparation there? Because, obviously, you're training together, but you're all kind of competing for that, that jersey and you're wanting to play that game on a Saturday. So, how did that kind of obviously you've got you've got to be tough mentally because there's, there's there's knocks in a, a professional's career where you you might not be playing for x amount of games so kind of how did you how did that kind of work really yeah no it's it's, it's a good question because it's this is where I think and you tend to find that a lot of goalkeepers delve heavily into the psychological side because there's so mm. much about the position that doesn't make sense you know effectively like you can play a fantastic game as a goalkeeper where your distribution's on point you're coming for your crosses you're 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 uh, solid in your handling you know you don't make any errors and yet you wake up the next day and you get a six in the paper because yeah it's like being a referee you know referees that have a great <laughs> game it is like referees that have a great game don't get noticed so then what happens is what do goalkeepers get noticed for if you make a penalty save in the last minute well how many chances do you get to actually do that you know you're reliant on luck rather than necessarily or reliant on circumstance I'll say rather than necessarily being able to go and bang in a hat trick and be the hero so a lot of where you gain pleasure will be from you know keeping clean sheets or from effectively stopping others gain pleasure you know you're not you're not getting the uh, the kind of heroes uh, applause and whatever else that a lot of the outfield players have the opportunity of getting. So psychologically, it's very different for one. And then, as you mentioned, there's one spot. So, you know, for a young goalkeeper, it's the biggest catch-22 that managers want a goalkeeper with experience, yet yeah. a manager needs to, at some point, give that goalkeeper experience. So, I mean, a lot of what I do now, and I work with 20-odd 20, 20, 20 goalkeepers now from, like, Premier League, Championship, League One, is certainly the younger goalkeepers is helping to manage their careers to try and find them those loans early on so they can get out get men's football get that experience and then start to climb the level so you see the likes of a Dean Henderson being mm. a great example where he's gone Grimsby I think it was in League 2 Shrewsbury League 1 Sheffield United Championship Sheffield United Premier League and now he's knocking on the door at Man United to be to be number one there at some point soon you'd think so that's like a great example of how the goalkeeper can climb the pyramid 
to get to the top. But it's tough because you could be a fantastic goalkeeper. But if you're not given your chance, I know goalkeepers that are out there that are 23, 24, and you'll never have heard of. And you probably will never hear of because they have never been given that shot at being number one. Definitely. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The way, just the way you kind of break it down and kind of put it in them kind of words. Um, I know a lot of people that will listen to this will will be kind of blown away a little bit because it's not it's not really thought of like that. You, you see, and, and I'm brilliant that you touched on Dean Henderson there because I'm I, I'm with you know I'm just as a, a my United fan myself. You know, we look at it and we think, how many times are people going to put De Gea under scrutiny, or is he going to make an error before then he gets pulled out for then you know, Henderson to have his opportunity. And it's almost like there's so much more than just, oh, well, you, you know, you made a mistake, so we're going to pull you out. There's so much more to it than that, isn't there? Massively. I think now the way that football's <laughs> gone, obviously with football being a business that it is and politics playing their part, it would be a massive call if he does drop De Gea, like officially drops him, especially when you've made the call to put a player on such a big contract, which you know has to be touched on. So it's, you know, they have made a decision that he is going to be, he is going to be their number one. They've made that decision in what they've, what they've done. The Chelsea have done it with Kepa. And I think it's always, it's always tough because now what's Kepa's value? What's the most expensive goalkeeper in the world? If they were to move him on now, I can't imagine they're going to get a huge fee for him. You know, and if anything, the more that Mendy and the more that Caballero, whenever it is, plays, the, the lower his value, the lower his stock. And this is football then as a, as a business. Do you know what I'd say is that Dean Henderson up to this point, his career has been managed perfectly. I'm not sure they've made the right call this season with him being there because it doesn't seem to yeah. be helping either. No, in, in I agree. Knock, knock on effect as well. Obviously, there's, there's De Gea, there's Henderson. And you kind of look at, obviously, Man United fan as well. You look at the Romero and apparently they, they denied him the opportunity to go to an Everton on a, on a last-minute deal. I mean, I don't know if you've been in that position before where you maybe weren't playing as many games as you liked and you've been blocked to move. I'm guessing that must be pretty demoralising, knowing you're not going to basically catch a ball in earnest for six months. Yeah. It's one of the biggest misconceptions where, look, you look at it logically and you think, oh, fantastic. We've got David De Gea, we've got Dean Henderson, we've got Romero, we've got Lee Grant. They've actually got eight professional goalkeepers, if you count wow. Kovar and Bishop and uh, Pereira, Pereira, and there's yeah. another one out on loan. You know, you got, you'd think, in theory, that's fantastic. You know, you've got four fantastic goalkeepers. They're brilliant. But it doesn't work like that because effectively no. you've got four guys. Well, certainly three. I think Grant is happy being a number number three or four. But you know you've got three guys there that all want to play. So what that creates isn't isn't harmony. That creates, um, yeah, a pretty you know a goalkeeping department that just doesn't function as it should. So despite the fact they've they've got three of the world's best goalkeepers on their books. I would argue that they haven't necessarily got the goalkeepers performing at their best. Well, certainly Romero and Henderson, they're not being given the opportunity. And David De Gea, mm. it's not like he's reacting brilliantly to having Henderson or Romero there, in my opinion. So this is actually part of what I do with a couple of clubs on a consultancy, is help yeah. structure their goalkeeping departments so that you have goalkeepers in the roles that they want to be doing. Because look, there are goalkeepers out there that are happy being a number two and are good number twos. And there's lots yeah. of good examples of them around. So in a perfect world, you'd have your number one, who is your outstanding goalkeeper, who is the number one. For me, unchallenged. People disagree with this, but you look at a Peter Schmeichel, was he ever challenged? In my opinion, no. And no. He, was, he was the outstanding number one, and everybody, he was never really questioned that he was number one. You then had <coughs> Gary Walsh as a number two, or you know yeah. a few other good examples, again, who knew their role. 
And then nowadays, a number three has become a role, which ordinarily is your older English goalkeeper, your Scott Carsons, your Andy Lonigans, your Lee Grant, uh, a few other good examples, where they play that number three role, where realistically they're not going to play, but they are a nice link between staff and players. Uh, they do a lot of the stuff when the number one needs a rest or what have you. And that, that tends to work as a good goalkeeping department but there's still a few that I think haven't quite got it right in the Premier League I look at the likes of Liverpool you know they've done it brilliantly Chelsea I think uh, sorry not Chelsea Man City with Edison you know when you've got an Allison and Edison that, that are that established and that good you know that if you're going in you're going to be a number two Zach Steffen a number two at Man City is happy to be a number two and they'll then loan him out like they did last season and bring him back this season uh, Murich they'll loan out so they've got a nice strategy as to how they work their goalkeeping department but again, it's not something that's necessarily thought of uh, in as much depth as what I'm discussing with you now. And what you'll then find yeah. is the likes of a Man United where, in my opinion, they haven't got it right at the moment. Why, what do you think that boils down to? Do you think it's just a case of they've just not given it enough thought? Or do you think it's just down to a little bit of like kind of, we'll just kind of see how it happens? Yeah, <laughs> I think it's um, probably not enough thought, which is is crazy to think of that because... Of course, they could have loaned Henderson out again this season. You know, click of a fingers, they'd have had 10, 15 Premier League clubs that would have taken them in a heartbeat. But they've obviously decided that now's the time to the fold. But for me, you know, we talk about players, or I certainly talk about players, without trying to dehumanise them. They are all small businesses. And like with any small business, you then have to market it appropriately. You know, you have to give it the best chance of success. Now, I think at the moment, this for me, as it stands, is a bit of a wasted year for Dean Henderson, because I think that really he should only have come back to Man United when he was going to be the number one. I don't see what value he's bringing as a number two. Yeah, he's putting pressure on De Gea. But again, I don't think it's necessarily pressure that De Gea needs or wants. You know, so I think at some point, my thought was that it would have been a clean break, either that De Gea would have moved on at some point and then Dean Henderson comes back into the fold or they go the other way and make the decision to move Dean Henderson on. And I'm sure that his valuation in the the current market would be significant. And maybe they make the decision that they cash in and move him on. But I think having both of them there, I just don't understand the the thinking behind it at all. And it will just be that it's so far down the pecking order when they've got other things going on with the outfield players, like some Pogba yeah. or whoever else. Of course, that's going to be at the forefront. And going back to my initial point, logically, it makes sense to have De Gea, Romero, um, uh, sorry, De Gea, Romero and Henderson in the building. Logically, it makes sense to have three fantastic goalkeepers there, but in practice, it very rarely works. Mm. Did yeah. you ever have a, a, a situation in your career? So obviously, you use yourself and Ben Foster and, and like Chamberlain. Did you have a have a time in your career where obviously you were number one for a sustained period, and then obviously maybe another keeper came in like a Foster, and he he saw himself as a number one. How kind of that, yeah. did that dynamic work? If you kind of um, when you're advising these these um, clubs and uh, the younger goalkeepers, I'm guessing you, you're using your own experience and how you've kind of processed that and and guiding like that, I'm guessing. Yeah, you're, you're spot on. because So when Ben Foster actually first came to Watford, uh, the manager pulled me and said, look, he's coming in, he's going to be number one. Now, I wasn't happy about that. And I knew at the time there was interest from the Premier League. We were a championship team then. So mm-hmm. I then ended up going on loan to Blackburn for the entire season. And they tried to sign me, couldn't get it done. And on deadline day, they just agreed a loan. Then what happened, Watford get promoted to the Premier League. My loan finishes. Blackburn tried to sign me. But because Watford had also made the Premier League, I had the choice of being a third choice effectively at Blackburn or being a second choice 
behind Ben in the Premier yeah. League. I mean, that's how it kind of worked out. So at that point, and actually at that point, I was then happy to be a number two because then, to be honest, Ben had come in and smashed it. And I knew that, you know, he was deserving of his place as number one. And if I'm honest, I could hold my hands up. He was better than me. So I was actually more than happy being a number two. So that was a really good goalkeeping department we had that year. Uh, the only time I've really had a, a I say, a difficult... No, it's been a couple of times, actually. One was when Mark Poom came in from Arsenal to us, and he was the Estonian international, played for Derby yeah. and what have you. He came to Watford fully expecting to be a number one. I was also fully expecting to be a number one. And it was a little bit uh, awkward for a month or two. And then eventually I, I got my place as number one and established myself. And it actually, the longer that I was number one and the better that I did, it just calmed down and he eventually accepted it and we were we were good and we're still good friends now. Um, and the only other time was when I signed for Brentford and this wasn't necessarily, the, the issue is very rarely between goalkeepers. You know, you talk about the goalkeepers union. We, we know that it is effectively the manager's decision. So that time at Brentford, I joined them and I was expecting to be outright one and effectively it didn't happen. So my gripe was more with the manager than anybody else. Um, but I then saw several goalkeepers come and go that were ahead of me and eventually I was able to establish myself but other than that I think I've been quite lucky really in that uh, I, I I was probably I made it too easy for me to be a number two at times I'd say uh, and I was with some very good goalkeepers so like Sir David Button when he was number yeah. one again I just rated him very highly so being a number two to him I accepted it because I was probably quite honest in that I knew at the time he offered more to the team than I did so I, I always felt like actually uh, yeah, being a number two behind him is okay. The same with Ben Foster, the same with Brad Friedel, because they were outstanding goalkeepers. How did that feel though? So say, like you said, you, you said those guys are exceptional goalkeepers. And so essentially I'm guess you're training Monday to Friday, knowing that you're going to be sat watching a game of football. How, how, how do you kind of, because from outside looking in, I'd be like, I, I want to play a game of football every Saturday. Um, how, how do you kind of process that? I'm, I'm guessing cause it'd be pretty tough. Was like I say, as an outsider looking in, that you're just kind of thinking, I'm, I'm going to be watching a game again. I'm just training for kind of no, um, no yeah. kind of outcome, essentially. I, I don't know. I might be, maybe a bit. No, do you know what? It, you're right. It, what, what I would say is it, it does shift over time because, you know, I, I guess my feelings towards football changed the more I was involved in it. And certainly as I got older, I, you know, I had every injury you could name, both shoulders operated <laughs> on. Uh, ruptured bicep, four screws in my elbow, broken cheek, broken eye, knee reconstructed. Like by the age of about 30, I was barely training anyway. So actually, I my mindset shifted really as I got into my late 20s. I got more into business because I kind of knew that my time was coming to an end. I mean, to make 32, which I did in the end, I probably did very well, bearing in mind the amount of injuries that I had. So, you know, my last couple of years, I knew that I was better as a number two because I was putting my body through less stress and I always felt that if I needed to step in, I could. Uh, like the season we got promoted from League One, for instance, I stepped in for a handful of games. And I think we won every game except one. And I knew that I could always step in and do a job. But I also knew I was never going to get back to my best because I just couldn't physically train enough in order to get there. So I think my mindset shifted a bit. And also, you know, I suppose with... Um, it's not an easy way of saying this, but of course, as a footballer, you earn, you earn good money. So it's not like you're depressed and hating life and whatever like you know as a lifestyle it, it was fine certainly as I got a bit older and I'd uh, I'd accepted that and I'd accepted my role within the team 
you know, I was still earning reasonable money. Uh, my day-to-day, you know, you get up and you go and kick a football around for a couple of hours and you're with a load of people that you enjoy their company and then you go home and have a nap in the afternoon and do whatever you do. <laughs> I mean, you know, I didn't, I wouldn't expect anyone to cry yeah. for me, you know. So I did then also appreciate a lot of the other things that life was able to give at that point. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a bad time, I'd say. It's more when you're younger and you need to, like Dean Henderson now, he, you know, you're on a fantastic contract at United, I'm sure, but... At the moment, he will be frustrated, I am sure, because he's young. He wants to play. He's got he's got the uh, the taste of it, and he's he's had such a good time when he has played that he will find this hard. And this is the bit where you know, as much as I touch on money and, and say that that kind of did help, and it did towards the end of my career. Like for him now, that would be a complete irrelevance. Yeah. He just wants to build his career. He wants to play in the biggest stadiums. He wants to play for England. He wants to do all these big, big things. And at the moment, he'll feel like he's hit a little bit of a, a plateau. So do you think that, sorry, I just want to just push on that a little bit more. So we get to, we get to Christmas. He doesn't get any more, doesn't get any more games. Do you think that's very realistic for him and his representatives to be kind of saying we want a loan in January because this kid is good enough to be playing number one for England in the Euros. However, he's not going to get picked number one unless he's playing. There's no way that Gareth Southgate can drop Pickford or even Pope at the moment because Dean's not playing. So yeah. Do you think it's very realistic that that's something they could be looking at? Uh, yeah, I do. I mean, ultimately, the club will have final say. And if they've got yeah. their reasons for wanting him to stay and they're, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're solid on that, then it might be difficult for him. But, I, I mean, me looking in from the outside, I can't see why they wouldn't do it. it surely it would make sense. If, if they have made the decision that they're going to stick with De Gea, which, you know, look, not that I don't think De Gea's had a bad season this season. He's 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 been okay. There's certainly been moments though when you thought like, oh, okay, maybe this is the moment they're going to make the change, and they haven't. Yeah, um, definitely. I mean, there was one goal in particular that did did frustrate me, where I thought he could have been a lot braver in the uh, the European Cup game, and I thought, but I thought if there is a chance that you're going to do it, it's going to be now, and they still didn't do it. So with that being yeah. the case, I don't know why they've got Henderson there. The other point is, by the way, is that Romero is a better number two than Henderson. Romero is a more experienced yeah. goalkeeper. If you need a goalkeeper to step off the bench, I would have Romero over Henderson. But I would have Henderson as a number one over Romero yeah. because of. Yeah. And this goes back to the goalkeeping structure that I uh, promote, and I I work with several clubs, and, and thankfully it's been very successful with the clubs that I've worked on it with. If you get that structure right, and you've got the one, two, three, and it's a happy camp, and they all know their positions, it works very well. For me, I would have Romero as a two, then I'd have either De Gea or Henderson as a one. Now, whoever is that one, the other would then be out on loan, as far as I'm concerned. Or if it's realistically, if Henderson plays, De Gea then would need to move yeah. on and you cash in on, on De Gea. But no, yeah, I think for me, 100%, I would be loaning him out in January if he's not in the team by then. Um, and like you say, from a, a human aspect as well, give him a chance of playing next summer, you know, because look, Pickford's having a, a tough time and he has done for a while. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I rate Pickford, I rate, I rate Pope, but certainly I think that if Henderson's playing regularly, uh, you know, and if Pope continues doing what he's doing, then certainly both Popey and Dean Henderson will put serious pressure on Jordan Pickford. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. So um, I want to I wanna move on to kind of um, business and kind of what you've done since football. However, before we kind of make that move, I've just got a, a couple of questions regarding teammates and players you've faced and stuff like that, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. Having a quick, quick fire answers. Yeah. So, um, the fastest player you've played with, Rich? 
Oh, uh, <laughs> see, this is it as a keeper. I don't notice these kind of things. Let me think. Oh, really? No, who was fast? Let me think. I mean, I was in, I suppose Bellamy was quite quick, I guess, from memory. Yeah. I mean, he was uh, Blackburn, obviously, he was very, very, very good. Let's go with him. Okay. Um, so, again, we talked about training, but who would you, who would, who would players moan about in training that weren't doing it? Who was your worst, who was the worst trainer? Oh, worst trainer. Oh, but on the flip side to that, who would you say is the best as well? Uh, worst and best, right? Let me think. Do you know what? Ben, in fairness to Ben Foster, at times in training, he was he wasn't great. Like he was, <laughs> he was him out. <laughs> he was a funny. No, do you know he's a funny lad. But what I'd say is, yeah. there was one example we played. Uh, I always remember it was Tottenham at home in the Premier League. For a start, he turns up late because he'd overslept. This is like a three o'clock kickoff. I don't know how you oversleep <laughs> for a three o'clock kickoff. But anyway, so he turns up late. Comes out for the warm up, and he was he was dreadful in the warm up. Balls going through his legs, just all over the show. Uh, me and Chambo, who was the coach at the time, was sort of speaking to each other privately, like this this could be disastrous today. It doesn't look it doesn't look with it. And then, as you could imagine, suddenly the game starts, and he is phenomenal. Boom. And I think yeah. I think he might have kept a clean sheet from memory. It was just save after save, and and that for me kind of summed Ben up that. He just loves yeah. playing games of football. Like his mentality is better than anybody I've ever met. So even when at times he's not necessarily the best trainer or does a good warm up, he can just switch it on. He has he's got that ability. Yeah, I like how you've kind of turned both of them into one. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Um so obviously you you had some years at Watford and you had a couple of loans out, Fulham, Blackburn, and, and you've spent time at Brentford as well. Um biggest joker? Uh, biggest joker, let me think. Probably George Savile, who is now up on Middlesbrough. Yeah, yeah. yeah he was with me at Brentford. He was a, he was a character. <laughs> I like that. That's good. Um, best dressed. And no, you, you can't say yourself. <laughs> no, it's definitely um... not me. Definitely not me. Um, <laughs> do you know, I'll have to give it, he, I hate to say this, but he was well-dressed with Sammy Saunders at Brentford. He was always yeah. very, yeah, he always turned up like he was going Looking for some sharp. modelling shoot afterwards <laughs> or something. Yeah, he was uh, He was always well-dressed, to be fair to him. Um, he, had a, he was massively into his fashion as well. And, <laughs> yeah, he, I'll give it to him as much as that. That pains me to say. Um, I've got I kind of t- two, but three. Uh, best player you've played with? But the best player you've faced as well? Uh, faced is an easy one. That's Ronaldo. Um, yeah. Best player I've played with. Um, I mean, the Blackburn lads were, were good. We had a really good season that season. Um, I was just saying to him, it was Oshashti Young, who's gone on to, to have a very, very good career. Ben Foster, as we touched on. I'm going to give it to Brad Friedel. Just that, yeah. Obviously, I've got to give it to a fellow keeper. And I thought that it's tight between Brad and Ben. Um, and very, very different keepers. But... Uh, I spoke about Ben enough, so I'll give this one to Brad. <laughs> <laughs> and um, which which manager had probably the biggest impact on improving you, um, and and why? Do you know, I've had so many managers. Uh, I've been quite lucky. Say lucky. I know it's lucky that they came and went, but you know, when I look back, the likes of uh, Ray Lewington, Aidy Boothroyd, Brendan Rodgers, Gianluca Vialli, Malcolm Mackay. Uh, Mark Hughes, you know, I think that is some some names there. Mark Warburton, Uwe Rossler. Um, I would say the one the one that actually, and I never played for him, but I I can see why he's gone on and done what he's done is Brendan Rodgers. Just his man management from memory. You know, I was the happiest yeah. being a number two that I've ever been. Like he would always keep you in the loop, always be talking to you, uh, and that's for me why he's gone on and done what he's done. He's obviously very knowledgeable about football, but his people skills are uh, second to none. 
Brilliant. Thank you. So we we dip in. So you, you've you finished your career and you've you've gone into business. Matt, um, can I, can I just quickly jump in and ask kind of one yeah football course. related. It's kind of a bit off tangent, but kind of more current, really. Uh, just kind of get your opinion on it, Richard. Really, if, if you don't mind, it's kind of the obviously we've had the the rainbow laces kind of um, uh, movement and awareness across all sports at the moment, um, and I find it baffling that. Football obviously battles to be inclusive and have all all races, uh, sexuality, people playing it. But to me, I find it crazy that all the all the, the players that play football, there is no openly gay footballers. And it, I don't know. If it, it kind of troubles me that is it the environment that kind of football is played in, or is it more the worry of fans and stuff like that? I, I was just curious with, with obviously the, the Rainbow Laces initiative now, kind of your your opinion on that, because it, it does sadden me a bit that there, there aren't any openly gay footballers in, in the UK that feel they can come out and and, and play. No. I mean, I, to be honest, like, I don't think anyone, like, anyone cares in, in the yeah, nicest yeah. possible way. Like, it's a big thing. Well, like, no, I mean, there's no lads that I've played with that I thought, I don't know how to say this in the right way, but, you know, you, you sometimes think, oh, maybe... But and if they were, it would be absolutely yeah. fine, of course. So yeah. this is the point, like no one cares. So I genuinely and people aren't gonna but I, I don't think there's been a player that I've played with that I thought could, you know, could be uh, could be gay. So but I think if there is, it is sad if there is and they haven't come out, it's really mm. sad because I don't think anyone cares anymore. Like it's just a non it's a non issue <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and this is the bit I don't know is whether fans, you know, I say all this and I, I you know, I've got probably similar you know, similar opinions where you're in a team environment and everyone seems to get on great. There isn't any of any uh, uh, sort of negative, um, there aren't any negative vibes really from what, you know, with all this kind of stuff that's going on at the moment. Certainly, I've, maybe I've just been very lucky in the teams that I've been and it's been very inclusive and the relationships have been great between everyone. But if there, if there is a player out there that is, uh, you know, is gay and is scared to come out, then that's really mm. sad. Really sad because I think we're in an age now yeah. where people don't care anymore. Like, just just yeah. do it. Just just be who you are. Just crack on with life. Like, yeah. you know. And if anyone does judge you, then you know we've seen how people come down on each other like a ton of bricks. Like, they're gonna have more stick than you're gonna have. You know, and and the fans yeah. and whoever else included. So, um, you know, I, I again, I don't know if there's anybody that I've played with that that is. Um, you know, it, it would sadden me to think that if there was someone that, that I played with that was and didn't come out, that would sadden me. But you know, I'm sure it won't be too long before someone yeah. does. Yeah, I um, I don't think you could have answered that any better. I think that is absolutely right. Yeah, it, it no one cares. It doesn't matter. Um, and it and it is a little bit sad if somebody feels that they can't come out if they are because of the environment that they're in. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. Mm. Um, so. You have written two books. First one, just correct me if I'm wrong, Graduation, yep. Life Lessons of a Professional Footballer. Yep. Yeah. Um, do you want to just briefly cap on that for me? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I don't talk to... Uh, the second one was more of a, like a book for, for uh, say, young footballers that are looking to... So the second one was, um, you want, so you want to become a professional footballer. Hello. Back of that and a lot of books that I've read, a lot of seminars I've been to, a lot of referential experiences, 
I was able to write a book about a season I had and include a lot of different ideas and a lot of lessons that I've learned effectively. And yeah, it was one that I was, I didn't intend to write it really, but we had a summer break and I wrote the whole thing on my Blackberry and I did it uh, just on holiday. I was on holiday for a couple of weeks and I was just, uh, yeah, I was just relaxing and started writing it more just, just one day when I was just lying out by, by a swimming pool from memory. And then before I knew it, I was quite enjoying the experience of writing it. It was quite, I suppose, cathartic would be the word. And yeah, before I knew it, I'd written 40 odd thousand words and I sent it to a guy that I knew that had had a book published. And uh, yeah, there was like a, a self-publisher, uh, some guy I knew that put it out and it ended up doing really well. So it still still sells. Now. It's amazing to me because it was 10 years ago now, I think it was. And even now it still sells like a book every other day somehow. I don't know how, but you know, it's uh, mental to think that wow. long ago and it's still selling. So, um, but yeah, no, it's something I'm, I'm proud of doing and uh, yeah, delighted obviously with the feedback and uh, hopefully one day I'll have a, another one in me. Hopefully. I mean, I'm pretty sure you've got plenty of experiences yeah, to grab yeah, autobiography well, maybe Not, not quite yet. Not <laughs> quite yet. One day, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Um, something else I want to touch on before we talk about probably more, a little bit more current while we've got, while we, um, we don't want to take up too much more of your time. Um, Dragon's Den. So you made, you made a, an appearance on Dragon's Den um, while you uh, were... I was a Blackburn, at, at actually. Right? Um, yeah. So I had to... Blackburn, right, okay. Yeah, I had 2005, to ask, 2006 uh, Mark then, right? for permission, which was uh, quite funny because I, I needed a day off. So I, had to, <laughs> I didn't speak to Mark Hughes too much during the time <coughs> I was there, but I did knock on his door and ask permission. And it turned out that he was a big fan of Dragon's Den. So he was happy for me to go down. But right. uh, yeah, look, you know, I look back on it now and it was, it was a bizarre experience. The whole the whole thing, walking up the steps, you've got the dragons in front of you, you've got all the uh, sound engineers and whatever else to your left-hand side. And um, I just remember I had a game the night before for Blackburn Reserves up in Morecambe. So I didn't get down to London until probably three in the morning. I had to be up at six in the morning for, uh, for filming. And you go in, you don't know wow. you're definitely going to get an opportunity. So there's about 50 people in this waiting room. And then we got called up pretty right. much first. So it was me and my colleague went there and... Yeah, it, you know, the actual way in which it was shown wasn't necessarily how it happened. We knew that Duncan Manatine was quite interested early on in the pitch. And then eventually the others made it clear that they weren't interested. But yeah. obviously, thankfully, Duncan uh, did decide to, to invest on the, the night itself. So, so now we have, um, obviously, you're doing uh, goalkeeping icon with the goalkeeping schools. Um, and you, uh, how often do you record uh, so your we own do podcast, two a week. Union? Um, we do like a roundup show every Monday and Thursday each week. And we do the odd feature podcast with sort of Premier League championship goalkeepers and goalkeeper coaches. Uh, and it's been really good fun, to be honest. So that's kind of, yeah, like I said, now it's everything and anything goalkeeping related. So we've got a lot of goalkeeping schools, the majority in the UK. We have got things going on in america and in new zealand as well randomly but yeah the majority of it is in the well, uk we've got about 30 or 40 centers a week that operate i think now and my main role though is working with professional goalkeepers so uh, as mentioned I've got about 20 or so in my books and uh yeah effectively being a bit of a sounding board for them i, I don't really like the word agent because my role is more in regards to their performance um, you know, so I'll be going through their clips every week, kind of uh, working with them on a psychological level as well and helping them pre-game, post-game and, yeah, assisting a lot of lads who are doing well at the moment. So that that's sort of my main role now. 
would you like to get involved in more of a, like a coaching role at maybe a, a fixed club eventually? Or are you, you kind of happy and content doing what yeah, you're doing? Yeah, no, I, to be honest, I'm happy. And one of the reasons was I did start doing a bit of coaching when I retired. The biggest issue I've got is physically, you know, now years of diving okay. around and kicking balls, certainly with my knee. So if, what tends to happen was when I was doing the coaching is I'd finish coaching. By the time I got home, my knees throbbing, my shoulders are throbbing, you know, and I get quite tight where I've had the operations on my shoulders. I get quite tight in my neck and yeah, I just, then suddenly I was having some neck issues. So no, to be honest now, it's more of a physical one. So I still, I'm able now to play golf, play tennis, do a lot of the physical things I want to do, but I'm very wary that if I push it too yeah. far, then it's back to square one. So that's the main reason I haven't gone down that route. And also I do just really enjoy the part that I play where I spend three to four hours a day on the phone to various goalkeepers, goalkeeper coaches, and I'm still heavily involved in the football world, which was what I wanted, you know, effectively without necessarily having the, yeah. uh, say the pain that was associated with the injury. So it's quite a nice role that I've got now. Yeah. That is, I suppose, it, it almost you're still massively involved without the day to day with the kinda, bruising. I mean, obviously, with, you know, doing this during uh, crazy times with COVID and what have you, but also the fact that I'm going to two or three games a week, so I'm still seeing plenty of football, working, and it's it's quite a nice feeling. As much as yeah. you know, my role now is is minimal with these lads that I'm working with. When I go and watch, you know, certainly some of the young lads that I work with and. Um, you know, I've had a few good ones in the summer that have moved to different clubs and you see them play a great game on TV. There is obviously that small part that you're playing in that and that's quite a nice feeling now. So as much as I can't be out there playing the game myself, you know, the dream would be to be sat at Wembley watching an England goalkeeper that I was working with uh, making that winning save in a World Cup or what have you. Yeah. That's the kind of aspiration now. So, you know, my next goal is, or my goals now, they've certainly changed from when I play, but it is right. Can I help? some of these young goalkeepers make it to the very top. Brilliant. Yeah, really, really good insight, Rich. Yeah, Sean, no. any questions before we kind of wrap say, up? Do you, do you think, I, I don't think you'd probably be able to name them, it would probably be unfair that the, the goalkeepers that you're mentored. Do you think that you have a potential <coughs> uh, international level keeper that you kind of deal with at the moment? Do you, do you see the attributes and the traits that they need to reach the very top yeah yeah there's um no some really good uh, you know i could list all of them in different different ways but no i mean ones that maybe have gained a bit of notoriety recently so there's a lad that's just made his debut for under 21s england um he's very good stoke there's uh david button who's at uh west brom sorry who's kind of waiting for a bit of a breakthrough um there's a couple of others several in the championship that start in the championship that are excellent goalkeepers one who made his Exactly. Yeah, that Joe, uh, Joe Bursick. There's uh, Adam yeah. Davis at uh, yeah. Stoke as well, who played for Wales recently. Uh, Dylan Phillips, fantastic for Charlton last season. Jack Bonham is great. We've got a lot yeah. of very good younger ones as well, like an under-17 England goalkeeper. So, yeah, I mean, my you know my my long-term goal is I, I don't want to work with too many. I just want to have like uh, a nice crop, which I think I've got now, and lads that again I believe in in a big way, and I feel like I can maybe help with some of my experience and education and yeah my goal now is within the next five years I want to be working with the England goalkeeper so <laughs> hopefully hopefully that yeah, will happen fantastic Kaz, one last quick question obviously you mentioned you're a Man United fan so what 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 do you reckon to this season so far and do, do you think Solskjaer the man to uh, it's a good question it's I mean for me do you know what? This is, going to sound, this is going to sound bad. Like I think now I've probably got so engulfed in goalkeeping 
I couldn't name many yeah. outfield players. If you ask me to name the Man United squad or starting eleven, I probably couldn't do it. Which is, but but I've watched every minute <laughs> of De Gea, every minute of Dean Henderson. So, what do I think of United? Uh, I mean, it's obviously been a bit mixed. You know, some some good, some bad. Um, I think this season's going to be interesting, just because I think whereas last season you had the two, well, one outstanding team in Liverpool, and obviously in the last few seasons you've had the two outstanding teams. This year, I get the impression it is up for grabs. So as much as I don't yeah. think United are certainly firing on all cylinders, I also don't think they're going to be a million miles away just because I get the impression that it is going to be, and with everything that's going on in the world, I could see it being uh, a bit of a random outcome this season. So, yeah, I wouldn't uh, give up hope just yet, gents. Yeah. No, good. So before before we, we wrap up, uh, we always got a couple of questions we always ask our guests. So <laughs> I'll go first. Uh, my first question is, um, I know you look after yourself. I know you're in great uh, nick. Um, uh, Favourite takeaway? Yes. Now, which leads me on to my next question perfectly. <laughs> Pineapple no. or pizza? <laughs> oh. <laughs> Do you know what I did when I was younger? Richard. It was my favourite when I was a kid, but nah, not for not since <laughs> I, not since I passed the age of fifty. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Also, do you know what? I just feel like a little boy now. <laughs> but no, thanks, um, Sean. Oh, go yes. ahead. So you, you're going out. You're playing a bit of golf Saturday morning, and you're, you're having a bit of a breakfast before. You've got the the sausage and egg bath there. You're grabbing the the red or the brown Ooh, sauce. Brown. Good man, yeah. Ah, we've had Do you know what? I think I'm the only person <laughs> that said red. So yeah, it's a bit, um, it's a bit mad. But Rich, I know you're an absolute, um, really busy guy. So I can't thank you enough for the time that you've given us. So um, I would like to thank you uh, hugely for coming on and sharing stories and your insight into not only your playing career and, and kind of business and kind of gone, but a little bit now and, and kind of what's going on with, um, with current no, my uh, pleasure. players. Thanks, so, thank you, thank you very much. You, Rich. 